Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am John Fiegel, Vice Chair of the Club's Personal Growth Forum and your host for today. We welcome our listening audience, and we invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. It is my pleasure to welcome Professor Piliucci to a virtual event at the Commonwealth Club. Professor Piliucci has a PhD in evolutionary biology from the University of Connecticut and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Tennessee. He currently is the Katie Arani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. His research interests include the philosophy of science, the nature of pseudoscience, and practical philosophies like Stoicism and New Skepticism. He has been elected fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science for Public Defense of Evolutionary Biology from Pseudoscientific Attack. Professor Piliucci has also published in national and international outlets, such as the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. He is a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry and a contributing editor to Skeptical Inquirer. He writes on practical and general philosophy and media. At last count, Professor Piliucci has published 178 technical papers in science and philosophy. He is also the author or editor of 16 books, including the best-selling How to Be a Stoic, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life. Other titles include Nonsense on Stilts, How to Tell Science from Bunk, and his most recent, The Quest for Character, What the Story of Socrates and Alcibiades Teaches Us About Our Search for Good Leaders. Please welcome Professor Massimo Filiucci. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, hopefully, this is going to be fun and informative. What I'd like to do uh, is to give a brief presentation on the notion of Stoicism as a philosophy of life. And I'll start by talking a little bit about what a philosophy of life is to begin with. And then we'll get into the basics of Stoicism. And hopefully, we have um, more than enough time for some interesting Q&A. So the first question, obvious question here is what exactly is a philosophy of life? And I think that a typical philosophy of life is made of two and usually actually three components. And these components are a metaphysics, by which I mean an account of how the world works, an ethics, that is a set of principles by which we try at least to live in the world, and a set of practices, that is, a, a set of exercises or, or things to do that allow us to actually implement our ideas about ethics in the world. Now, if you put it this way, then it turns out that religions are also philosophies of life, and therefore the, the scope of a philosophy of life in general is very, very broad. Essentially, you could argue that pretty much everybody on earth practices a philosophy of life whether they think of it that way or not. Let me give you a couple of examples uh, to see how that works. So this table that is about to unfold on the screen has a religion or philosophy in the first column, a brief description of the metaphysics in the second column, the ethics in the third, and the practices in the fourth. So let's start with something that might be familiar to most people. I grew up Roman Catholic, for instance, in, in Rome, in Italy. 
and therefore I'm familiar with uh, the basic precepts of Christianity. Now, Christianity is typically considered a religion. Uh, it does have a metaphysics, among other things, that metaphysics includes the notion of a benevolent God that created the world that has certain attributes, such as he's all-powerful, benevolent, etc., etc. There is, of course, an ethics, and that ethics includes the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament, the teachings of Jesus from the New Testament, and a number of other things. And then there are some practices. I mean, maybe Christians don't think of them as practices, but that's what they are. Praying, for instance, most obviously. Communal activities, uh, for instance, going to church, listening to sermons and things like that. Reading and meditating on scriptures. So that's a general idea. Now, compare that with, let's say, Buddhism. Buddhism, according to some people, is a religion. According to other people, is a philosophy. And right there, that shows that there is actually a, sort of not a sharp line demarcating the two. But in the case of Buddhism, the metaphysics in, involves, for instance, things like the notion of a cycle of birth and rebirth, the, the idea of karma, and so on. The ethics includes the four noble truths about how the world works and what causes suffering, as well as the eightfold path to enlightenment. Uh, the practices include things like different kinds of meditations, for instance, deflate ego meditation, loving kindness meditation, and so on and so forth. So you can see that a philosophy or, or life or religion has these three components. Stoicism is no exception and it works pretty much in the same way. And we'll talk a little bit about Stoics metaphysics, more about Stoic ethics, and then I'll mention here and there some Stoic practices, and then we can talk about those even more, if you will, during the Q&A. So what is Stoicism? Well, Stoicism is a philosophy of life that began about 300 BCE in Athens. The guy that started it is this fellow here on the left, Zeno of Citium. Now, at the time, we're talking about the Hellenistic period. There were a number of, of competing philosophies of life, Epicureanism, Aristotelianism, Platonism, Cynicism, Skepticism, and so on and so forth. Stoicism was actually somewhat of a latecomer. By that time, Plato had already died, and so had Aristotle, for instance, um, and their philosophies were in, in full, in full uh, swing. In fact, Zeno did study with other philosophies, philosophers. He studied at uh, Plato's Academy. He studied with um, a cynic uh, teacher and so on and so forth. And then he finally fought confident enough to put together his own teachings and started talking to people about this new way of looking and living, looking at and living life. Now, However, he made a, an important decision. Instead of doing what was the norm, which is going somewhere out of town and create a school, so Plato's Academy is outside of Athens, so was Epicurus Gardens, so was Aristotle's Lyceum, and so on and so forth. So they were kind of isolated uh, places where people would go on purpose just to practice philosophy, learn and practice philosophy. Zeno said, no, no, philosophy is for everybody, ought to be for everybody, so we're going to do it in the open. And he chose the kind of place that you see on the right, um, that is a stoa. A stoa is a columnade, as you can see. It's open. Uh, usually it's near a market, uh, in, the, in this case near the Agora, which is the central market, was the central market in Athens. People would just mingle in, the, in, in stores uh, in order to talk to each other, conduct some business, etc., etc. And so Zeno basically started preaching his own philosophy, if you will, in the stoa, and that is where the name of the philosophy itself comes from. It's called Stoicism because it, it was practiced initially inside of Stoas. 
it spread very quickly and it moved to Rome where it was very successful and because the Roman Empire was expanding then Stoicism became a very popular philosophy the major uh, rival of Stoicism at the time was Epicureanism it turns out rather few people are, were into things like Plato or Aristotle at the time uh, but Stoicism and Epicureanism were the two major, the two dominant philosophies uh, in the Roman Empire. The three fellows that you see in here are from the, on the upper left, Seneca, who was a senator and advisor to the Emperor Nero, who is one of the most important Roman Stoics of the first century. In fact, interestingly, there is a movie about Seneca just coming out with John Malkovich in about a month or so, and I'm curious to see what they're what they're doing with this character. The one on the lower left is a fellow named Epictetus. I'll tell you much more about Epictetus in a few minutes because most of the rest of this talk is actually about his version of Stoicism. Epictetus was a slave initially. He was brought at the court of the emperor Nero as a slave, but he was brilliant. He was allowed to study philosophy. Eventually he was uh, manumitted. That is, he was freed. He became a, a freed man. And uh, he started teaching philosophy in Rome, but that kind of uh, annoyed a later emperor, Domitian, because as we know, power doesn't like people to speak truth to it. And that's what Epictetus was doing. So he was sent into exile to northeastern, northwestern Greece, where he reestablished his school and became the most important, which became the most important school of philosophy in the second century. And finally, the guy on the right is Marcus Aurelius, the famous emperor philosopher, who was also a Stoic and in fact was greatly influenced by Epictetus. One of the unusual characteristics of Stoicism is that from the beginning, it was open to women, it was not the only philosophy to be so open. Epicureanism also was open to women. And in fact, we have a number of uh, known women that were practicing Stoicism in ancient times. The most famous of, of whom are probably is Portia Catonis, who is shown in this um, in this picture. Uh, she was the son, uh, sorry, the daughter of a prominent and very important um, uh, senator, Cato the Younger, who was an arch enemy of Julius Caesar. And she married Brutus, who was the major conspirator against Caesar. Now let's talk about stoicism in terms of both theory and, and practice. I think that there are different ways of presenting Stoicism, and um, depending in particular on, on which author one focuses on. Seneca presents the philosophy in a, one way, uh, Marcus Aurelius does it in a different way. Uh, that's not surprising, right? I mean, if you listen to a modern-day Christian, for instance, or a modern-day Buddhist, you might get slightly different presentations and, and different ideas, different ways of looking at it, uh, depending on, on who is talking and, and what their background actually is. I picked Epictetus because, in, in my opinion, the version of Stoicism that comes out of Epictetus is not only the most clear, but also the most practically useful. So the way I see it, there are two things that characterize Epictetus's uh, brand of Stoicism, or I call them two pillars. One is the notion that we should live according to nature. Now, what does that mean? Uh, it, it, it doesn't mean that we should be running naked into the forest and hugging trees, although there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. What it means is to take seriously human nature. You can see on the on the slide, there are pictures of chimpanzees in particular. Actually, that's a, 
related species. It's called, it's, uh, these are the bonobos, or sometimes known as the pygmy chimpanzees. And just like the bonobos, we are a species that is capable of high levels of intelligence, and we're highly social. In fact, we are arguably the most social species on Earth and the most intelligent species on, on Earth by a long shot. The Stoics observed this and thought that if these are the two characteristics that fundamentally distinguish human beings from any other kind of animal, then living according to nature means living socially using our ability for, for reasoning in order to solve problems. Right. So living according to nature doesn't mean, as I said, being sort of ecologists or environmentalists. It doesn't mean that anything that is natural is therefore good. The Stoics were very aware that there are lots of natural things that are not good. For instance, you know, poisonous mushrooms come to mind. Uh, so that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, look, the two fundamental characteristics of human nature are reason and, so and sociality. So uh, that indicates that nature is this natural for us to reason our way out of our problems and it is natural for us to live socially and that is the good human life it's a life of reason and social interactions the second pillar of stoicism in the version of epictetus is sometimes referred to as the fundamental rule or the fundamental rule of life that's how that's what epictetus calls it and this is the notion that some things are up to us and other things are not up to us and which is pretty straightforward. That's that's pretty obvious. Uh, but the corollary here is that a good life is the result of focusing on the things that are up to us, while at the same time developing an attitude of equanimity and acceptance for the things that are not up to us. This thought may be familiar because it's also found in other cultures. It comes out in Buddhism, for instance, comes out in Judaism, but it also comes out in 20th century Christianity. Uh, if people have ever heard of the serenity prayer, which is often articulated at the beginning of 12-step organization meetings like uh, Alcoholic Anonymous, the prayer asks God to allow us uh, to, be, to have the wisdom to tell the difference between what we can change and what we cannot change, the courage to change what we can, and the serenity to accept what we cannot. That's essentially Epictetus. And in fact, it's not by chance. Uh, Christ, the Christians took a lot of stuff uh, from the Stoics. This notion of the fundamental rule is, is one of them. Now, we'll see more implications of the fundamental rule in a minute, because the first obvious question is, okay, and what exactly is up to us and what is not up to us? That is, on what kinds of things should we focus in order to be you know, living a happy life? And what kinds of things should we instead try to work on accepting with equanimity? And Epictetus actually gives us a list. He actually says it explicitly. He says, some things are up to us while others are not. Up to us are opinion, motivation, desire, aversion, and in a word, whatever is of our own doing. Not up to us are our body, property, reputation, office, and in a word, whatever is not of our own doing. Now, the first list, opinion, motivation, desire, and aversion, is a little bit misleading when it's rendered in English instead of then in Greek, because those words in English have a slightly different meaning than they do in ancient Greek. So let me try to explain a little bit more carefully, because this is a fundamental concept here. It's a, it's a really important uh, thing to, to understand before we go, we go on. Basically, what Vitidus is saying is that what is up to us are only our judgments, that's what he calls our opinions, 
our our, our decisions to act or not to act. That's what he calls a motivation. And then our values and disvalues. Those are the desires and aversions. That is what we value, what we think is good, and what we disvalue, what is what we don't think is good, what we think is bad. Those are the only things that are up to us. Essentially, they're all forms of judgments. They're judgments about what is good and what is not good, about should I do this thing or not do this thing, and uh, should I care about this or not care about this. Those are all judgments, right? So it really comes down to one thing, judgment. Everything else, he says, including our body, meaning health, property, uh, that is our wealth, our reputation, our career, nothing else is really up to us. Meaning what? We can influence those things, obviously. I can take care of my well, of my health, for instance. But taking care of my health is, a, is really a result of a number of judgment calls that I make, right? So I judge that it's good for me to go to the gym. I judge that it's good for me to see the doctor on a regular basis. I judge that it's good for me to uh, eat a healthy uh, diet and so on and so forth. Those are all judgments and decisions to act or not to act in a certain way. Whether or whether that actually those decisions and judgments actually result in good health, that's not really up to me because all sorts of other stuff can happen. You might have heard that we have been hit by a pandemic over the last three years. Well, that's definitely not up to me. These things happen. I can do. I can go to the gym every day. I can eat the best diet, go to the doctor, and still get hit by a nasty virus. Or I can much more simply go down the street and cross the street and be hit by a car and then end up at the hospital. So the outcome of my decisions is not up to me. The decision themselves, however, are. That means, according to Epictetus, that I need to focus on making the best decisions because those are the ones that are more likely to bring about good outcomes. But I should also, from the get-go, understand that sometimes the outcomes go my way, some other times they won't go my way, and I need to be okay with that. I mean, I need to be serene with that decision. Now, another... Uh, ancient writer Cicero, who was not a Stoic, but but was very close to Stoicism, he was very sympathetic to Stoicism, came up with a metaphor to explain what Epictetus is getting at. What I just said, it's a little anachronistic because Cicero actually lived before Epictetus. Uh, but that idea of the fundamental rule was around for, for a while. So he is an archer, for instance. Uh, this is an actual painting from uh, of uh, Paris, prob probably of Paris, the, the guy that um, brought Helen to Troy. And here's what um, Cicero says uh, the, a good attitude from an, from an archer is going to be. If a man were to make it its purpose, his purpose to take a true aim with a spear or arrow at some mark, his ultimate end would be to do all he could to aim straight, whereas the actual hitting of the mark would be, in our phrase, to be chosen but not to be desired. So he's making, again, this distinction of I'm going to do my best to try to make the right decision in terms of aiming my arrow, the moment in which the arrow is gonna is gonna go, uh, the the tension that I'm putting on the on the bow, etc. All of those are up to me. But whether I actually hit the target or not, it's not because a gust of wind might ruin the best shot, or if the if the target is an enemy soldier, it might turn and at the last minute see me shooting the arrow and duck that sort of stuff. So again, there is this distinction between our intentions and actions on the one hand and the outcomes of those actions on the other hand. This applies to pretty much everything in life. That's why Epictetus calls it the fundamental rule of life. As I said, other Stoics had already 
come up with similar ideas, but he makes it a fundamental part of his philosophy. For instance, if we're talking about career, right? You prepare yourself for a job interview, it comes natural for us to say, I want that job. But getting the job is not up to me. What is up to me is to prepare in the best way. So put together a, a good resume, uh, you know, practice the interview as much as it is possible, uh, you know, getting a good night of sleep and not going out drinking the night before the interview, showing up and try, try to show up in time for the interview and, and so on and so forth. But whether I actually get the job or not, that depends on other factors that are not up to me. It depends on who is doing the interview, their mood, um, depends on who the competitors are for the job, it depends on whether I'm actually a good fit for the job, and so on and so forth. Similarly, when uh, we're talking about um, relationships, right? So what is up to you in a relationship? It is to do your best for within that, that relationship. So to be caring and loving and attentive and listening and so on and so forth but whether in fact that relationship is going to last or not is not up to you it's also up to the other person the outcome you do not control the outcome you only control your efforts but not the final outcome now epictetus promises happiness and serenity if we take seriously the fundamental rule of life this is the same promise you get from the serenity prayer in fact right and he says, if you have the right idea about what really belongs to you and what does not, you will never be subject to force or hindrance. You will never blame or criticize anyone. And everything you do will be done willingly. What really belongs to you is, of course, what's up to you. Your, again, decisions to act or not to act in your judgment. What it does not belong to you is the outcomes. And so if you attach yourself emotionally to the outcomes, then you're really not going to have a good life. You're going to blame other people. You're going to be you know, subject to all sorts of hindrances. You're going to be unhappy. But if you focus on what is really up to you, Epictetus says, then you're going to be happy because no matter what the outcome is, you know you've done your best. And that's all you could do. There is nothing else to be done. There is a second aspect to uh, Epictetus' philosophy other than the fundamental rule that it's also important and, again, very practical. And uh, this is sometimes referred to as role ethics. There is a, a really nice book by my colleague and friend, Brian Johnson, uh, called The Role Ethics of Epictetus, if people are interested in getting more information about this. But here's the, the basic idea. So the notion is that we, according to Epictetus, play a number of roles in, in life. And... Some of these roles are in competition with each other. There's trade-offs. And, and basically, a good life is one in which we manage and handle these roles in the best way possible. Now, to help us doing that, Epictetus reminds us that there are three fundamental categories of roles. There are three kinds of roles that we play. One is the basic role as human beings or members of what the Stoics call the human cosmopolis, the big brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity. Okay? We are all human beings, so we, we play that role automatically. We, it's, it's given to us uh, from the very fact that we are, in fact, human beings and not chimps or lions or something like that. Then there are roles given to us by circumstances. For instance, I'm somebody's daughter or son. That wasn't my choice. Right? That was just the circumstances determined that that was a situation. And then finally, there are uh, there's a group of roles that uh, we choose given the circumstances. For instance, my career. I decided to be first uh, evolutionary biologist, and then I 
change to philosophy. So that's where, or when I became a parent, I decided that I wanted to become a parent and so on and so forth, right? So there are these three categories of roles and how they are related to each other. According to Epictetus, the fundamental rule of a human being is the one that trumps everything else. It should, it's the most important role that we play and we should try to play it always in the best way possible. And then the other, the other two sets of roles are kind of balanced uh, with each other. And the balance, the exact balance depends on the specific circumstances and depends on the individuals. I'll give you a couple of examples in a minute of what, how that actually works. Right, but that, that's the idea. Now, somebody might be confused and say, well, wait a minute, how do I play a role in the human cosmopolis? I'm not the president of the United States. I'm not the, the prime minister of the UK or something. You know, I don't have any power. So how do, how do I actually play a role in the human cosmopolis? According to the Stoics, every time you interact with another human being, you play a role in the human cosmopolis. So every time you treat somebody justly with fairness, with respect, you are improving the cosmopolis. Every time you're being nasty or disrespectful or unfair to somebody else, you're actually undermining the whole of the human cosmopolis. So that's a, a simple way to understand what they're talking about here. Not just your relatives, not just your loved ones, not just your friends, anybody. There are plenty of other ways in which we either help or undermine the human cosmopolis. What we eat, for instance, has effects, our choices, therefore our judgments about what to eat or not to eat. They have implications in terms of uh, animal suffering, for instance, environmental effects and stuff like that. Those are also, those choices, every time you make a choice at the supermarket or at the restaurant to eat or not to eat something, to buy or not to buy something, you are in fact either undermining or uh, improving the human cosmopolis. So that's, there's quite a bit going on there. Now, the roles that Epictetus says that our, our roles in life need to be interpreted in the best way possible with dignity and integrity. Imagine you were just an actor, and right? So you're given certain roles and you're given certain stage directions, but how to play the role is up, is up to you. And you can do a great performance or you can do a really lousy performance or somewhere in between. Epictetus, in fact, says, only consider what price you sell your integrity. You must, if you, you must sell it, man, at least do not sell it cheap. That is, that is try to do your best. Nobody's perfect. We will we'll fail one way or, or another, one time or another. However, let's put the bar as high as possible. Do not sell ourselves cheap. That's the first piece of advice you get from Epictetus about how to play roles. Now, let me give you an example. There is an example in, in which a student of Epictetus comes to him, he's a father, and he's distraught because his daughter is sick, and he couldn't take it anymore. He was uh, at her bedside, but he was just too distraught. He, he just left. He left his wife in charge of the situation uh, because he was suffering too much. And Epictetus says, well, then, do you feel that you were acting right in doing this? And the father answers, I was acting naturally. This is an example in which Epictetus brings up the distinction between natural and ethical. Yes, it is certainly natural for the, for the father to be distraught at the, the, the view of, of his daughter who is sick. So it's understandable that he is distraught. It's natural. He's his father. He's the father. However, the father, because he's playing the role of father in these circumstances, Right? He's supposed to be taking care of his, of his um, uh, daughter. His ethical duty as 
while he's playing the role of father, is to take care of his daughter. And in fact, Epictetus, in the same bit of the discourses, which is the book where this example comes from, says to the father, you know, imagine that, that you were sick and your wife left because you couldn't take it. Would you be happy with that sort of decision? Of course, the father says, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Well, that's right. You wouldn't because your, your wife would be uh, failing in the ethical duty that is uh, part of her role as as a wife the same is happening here you're failing your daughter and that's you should reconsider that situation go go back to her there are also various examples in the discourses of how to balance different different social roles but here is a, a summary that epictetus gives us he says if you sit in the town council of some city remember that you're a counselor if you're young remember that you're young if old that you're an elder if a father that you are a father for each of these designations, when duly considered, always suggests the acts that are appropriate to it. What he's saying is like, we know most of the times, not necessarily always, but most of the times we know what our roles imply. Certainly there is more than one way to be a good father and there is obviously plenty of ways to be a bad father or to be a good mother or a bad mother or to be a good friend or a bad friend or a good colleague or a bad colleague. However, Broadly speaking, we understand what it means to be a good colleague, for instance, you know, cooperative, respectful of other people, you know, engaged in, in making the, the, the work environment better and, and more efficient. We know what it means to be a father, take care of your children. We know what it means to be a wife, take care of your husband or partner, or whatever it is. So there is there's a number of things that just a simple reflection on the very title of the role, the name of the role, already tells you a lot about uh, how you're supposed to be playing that role. Now, but how do we learn to play these roles other than thinking about you know, one, one way or, or another? Well, the Stoics had a number of techniques, actually, but one of the most important uh, is to pick a role model. So to pick somebody that you think embodies a good version of that role, if you're if we're talking about your your career, for instance, you know, pick somebody who you look up to that has a, is a very good role model for that particular uh, career. Or if you were talking about being a father, pick somebody who you know as being a good father. Or if you're talking about a good partner, pick somebody who you think has been a good part, partner, et cetera, et cetera. And then try to model your behavior after theirs. The, the, the role models don't need to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. They just need to be people that you look up to. And some of these role models that were used in antiquity, that we know of a number of them that the Stoics adopted, some of them were real people that, that you might, might have known. Others were real people that you probably didn't know, but you read about or you, or you heard about. And others were actually entirely fictional. These are two examples here that I'm presenting. On the left is Cato the Younger. He was the father of Portia, Portia Catonis, the woman that I showed you at the beginning of the talk. And he was an arch enemy, as I said, of Julius Caesar. He was known in Rome for being for having a high degree of integrity. Uh, apparently, in in Republican Rome, near the end of Republican Rome in the first century BCE, uh, if somebody were to were doing something was doing something not quite right, uh, they would would excuse themselves and say, "Well, not everybody can be a Cato." So he was famous for having a high degree of integrity. So he's obviously a good choice as a role model. A, an example of an imagined role model is Odysseus, the Homeric uh, 
character. Why is he a good role model? Well, he's he's smart. He's practically uh, uh, wise, meaning that he knows how to get himself out of uh, difficult situations. But more importantly, he's courageous. He tries to do the right thing uh, in the Odyssey. And the right thing is he wants to get back home to his wife and his and his son. And he turns down, he even turns down immortality twice in the Odyssey in order to get back home. So he was a role model for the Stoics because of these characteristics. Now, to you and, and, and I mean, yeah, I doubt that Cato the Younger or Odysseus, you know, resonate that that well. So we need to pick modern role models. And again, the choice is entirely yours, but he has three suggestions. Some of my favorite role models. Nelson Mandela. I don't know. I never met him in person, but I read about him. I read his biography. I, I read about what he's done and what is and and how what kind of person he was. And interestingly, uh, Mandela, although he was not a stoic, he actually credited the reading of Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Marcus Aurelius was a stoic, in order to really help him work through some of the anger that he had when he was in prison during the apartheid uh, regime. Uh, Mandela was understandably angry and upset about his own fate, about the fate of his people. And at some point, somebody sneaked in a, a copy of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. He read it. And that was the beginning of an epiphany of the, the beginning of the uh, idea that actually it's better to try to reach out even to your enemy and to try to remember that even your enemy or your tormentor is still a human being who probably has family and loved ones, et cetera, et cetera. And that changed entirely his attitude in, in a way that I would say is a stoic way of doing things. One of my modern contemporary role models is a woman named Susan Fowler. She's a, a, now she has, she has a career as a writer, as an author, but she was famous. She became famous a few years ago because she was a whistleblower uh, at um, Uber Motor Company. She was the one that came out and denounced the culture of the widespread culture of sexual harassment at the company and of course she paid a personal price for it uh you know she was harassed herself she lost her job etc cetera, etc cetera. but one of the things i didn't know until i actually started corresponding with susan is that she in fact considers herself a stoic uh, she has a, a wonderful essay on her blog uh, on the 20 books that most changed that changed her life when I, when she was growing up and Three of the top four are Stoic books. There are Epictetus's Discourses, uh, the Letters by Seneca, and the Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And then I also have a favorite imaginary role model, uh, Spider-Man, our you know neighbor, neighborly superhero. Why? Because he's famous for for living by the uh, this notion that was imparted to him by his uh, uncle Ben, according to certain versions of the story, that with great powers come great responsibility, right? So he always tries to do the good, the, the right thing. He's Spider-Man, he's, he's one of those uh, superheroes that really has a strong moral compass, unlike others uh, that are not necessarily do. And so now he has great powers, so he has great responsibility. I don't have great powers, but I still have responsibility toward my loved ones, my my friends, my family, and the rest of humanity as much as I can. So it's a it's a good reminder of you know what would that person do basically. Incidentally, there is very good 
empirical evidence from modern science that picking a role model really does work. People, if people get into the habit, the mental habit of asking themselves a crucial point, you know, what would my role model do under similar circumstances, they actually tend to do the right thing. They tend to, to um, behave more ethically than otherwise. So the notion that Epictetus presents, therefore, is that happiness is to be understood as a serene and pro-social life, which is informed by reason. Uh, the picture you're looking at is of different Greek masks on the, that were used by actors on the stage, because that is the metaphor that Epictetus uses, in fact, um, to explain his, his role model, his role ethics, I'm sorry. So serene, pro-social reason, right? Reason, again, because this is a natural, a natural propensity of human beings. It's a natural characteristic. Pro-sociality, because living in groups and in complex societies, again, is natural. And serene, because if you actually do practice the, the fundamental rule of life and uh, generally try to live by Stoic principles, you will be serene. And that is, according to the Stoics, what happiness actually is. Now, there are a couple of other things that I want to mention. Well, one, one important aspect of Stoicism that I haven't touched on, and, and it is crucial. So far, I've talked mostly from a personal perspective, right? So it, it's all about, it has been all about what kind of decisions you are going to make or not make, uh, how you are going to develop an attitude of equanimity toward uh, you know, what happens to you or what or doesn't or doesn't happen to you and so on and so forth. Uh, we talked about the roles that you as an individual will play, certainly within society, but as an individual. However, the Stoics were also cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitanism means uh, that you, you consider the rest of humanity as if it were your family, right? Cosmopolitan just comes from the Greek and means a citizen of the world. And this diagram here that uh, you're looking at uh, is trying to summarize the Stoic attitude toward cosmopolitanism. This is actually from the writings of a second century Stoic named Hierocles, who was active in Rome at the time. And Hierocles said, look, of course, it's important for you to take care of yourself. That's the first little circle that you see at the, in the slide, right? On the lower part of the slide. Because if you don't take care of yourself, then you can't take care of anybody else. It's, it's like when they, what they tell you on airlines uh, videos at the beginning or you know, before takeoff, if, if there is a trouble and the oxygen masses comes down, put first the one on you and then on your child. Why? Because if you don't put it on yourself, you're not in a position to help anybody. So yes, you, you do need to start with care of the self. Stoics are self-caring. They are, they are okay with taking care of yourself. However, you're not going to be a, a human being, a functional human being, if, that's all, if it's all about you, you become a sociopath. And therefore, of course, this, the next circle of concern that you should be uh, trying to, to uh, cultivate is your family. That's the one that comes natural, right? We grew up, most of us grew up within a family, and these are people that take care of you typically your parents, but not always. I grew up with my grandparents, for instance. And your family is the obvious second level of concern. However, these two, these two first levels do come naturally to us. We don't really need to be told about this. 
However, after that, reason steps in, comes in, the Stoics say, and you start realizing that, wait a minute, but other human beings, even though I don't know them personally, are just like me. They can suffer like me. They can be happy like me. Uh, they can have problems like me. They can have joys, experience joy like me, the same, in exactly the same way. Um, and therefore, it doesn't make any sense not to consider their own welfare just in the way in which I would consider the welfare of my family or friends. My family or friends, after all, are mine only by chance. I could have been born in a different time or a different place, and I would have different parents and different different friends, right? Different family and different friends. So the next step, therefore, is our fellow citizens, meaning in this case, uh, literally citizens, that is the people that live in, in your, your same city or town or you know village. But then the same exact reasoning, of course, applies to your countrymen, meaning everybody lives in, in the same nation as you do. And by further extension, uh, the same reasoning applies to humanity as, as a whole. So that's where the cosmopolitanism comes from. And then we're the, the idea is that we're supposed to be treating anybody, you know, regardless of whether they're our close family or friends or they live on the other side of the, of the planet, in the same way, which means with justice. And justice for the Stoics just means fairness, reciprocity, and uh, dignity. In fact, again, Epictetus is the one that tells us so explicitly in the discourses, he says, do as Socrates did, never replying to the question of where he was from, with I am Athenian or I am from Corinth, but always I am a citizen of the world. The Stoics considered themselves Socratic, meaning that they were, in fact, highly influenced, strongly influenced by the teachings of Socrates. And one of the most important influences is, in fact, this notion of cosmopolitanism. Now, just imagine if we all tried in, in our little corner of the world to be cosmopolitan as much as possible. This, this would have huge implications at the level of how we behave individually and how we behave therefore as as a society you can in fact argue that the root of conflicts in the world at any particular time is precisely because people do not practice cosmopolitanism otherwise if you start seeing people on the other side of the frontier as your brothers and sisters it's hard to imagine um, that a lot of the crap that we do and we've done over the last 2000 years would actually take place so this is pretty much what I wanted to tell you uh, tonight. If you are curious about more about Stoicism, there are these three books that I wrote about it. There's lots of other stuff out there. There's a lot of good books about Stoicism. But since this is my talk, you will indulge me in uh, finishing with, with my own. How to be a Stoic is a general guide uh, based on my personal experiences to Stoicism, both theory and practice. The one on the right, A Field Guide to a Happy Life, is really an homage to Epictetus. It's really an attempt to bring Epictetus' philosophy up to the 21st century as it is informed by modern science. And the one in the middle, A Handbook for New Stoics, which I co-wrote with my friend Gregory Lopez, is really unique, I think. It's the only book that I know of where there is, uh, you, you will be presented with a number of practical exercises that you can actually uh, do in order to deal with whatever problem uh, happens to bother you more. Let's say anger management, for instance, uh, or how to, to um, deal with uh, problematic friends or something like that. So thanks very much for your attention. Uh, that, that is all. And uh, hopefully we have time for some Q&A. Thank you. You are listening to a talk 
by Professor Massimo Pigliucci, and we'll take some questions from the audience now. Please type your questions in the chat and they'll be relayed to me. Uh, I'd like to start with one. Uh, in your book, The Quest for Character, you were, you were speaking earlier about role models. And uh, in this case, uh, there was a, the beginning section was about Socrates and his attempts to guide Alcibiades towards uh, good character. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how Socrates made that attempt and, and how it turned out? Yeah, uh, <laughs> so it didn't turn out very well. So uh, the, the quest for character is about, about character because character is foundational to all of Greco-Roman philosophy, not just Stoicism, although Stoicism in particular. Is improving our character means improving ourselves ethically, uh, becomes becoming better people, right? And uh, the, the book starts out with these... Uh, famous story of Socrates and Alcibiades. And Alcibiades is an incredible figure. I mean, he was impossibly handsome, uber-rich, uh, dashing, brave, coming from a noble family. I mean, he had everything you could possibly imagine, except a good character, <laughs> as, it <laughs> as it turns out, uh, which turned out to be fatal for both himself and for Athens, actually. Now, Alcibiades was a student and friend of Socrates. And when he was in his early 20s, he went to Socrates and said, look, I, I have all these resources. I'm so good at doing all sorts of things. I really think I need to be a leader in, in Athens. You know, I, I need to be a statesman. I need to be a general and you know, guide our people. What do you think? And Socrates basically puts him down to a, what we would call today a job interview. And he asks him, so well, what would you do? And how would you actually proceed? And why would you do it? And so on and so forth. And it turns out that, you know, halfway through the interview that Alcibiades is just the wrong person to lead Athens or any other city because he's a narcissist. He's, he's self-aggrandizing. He doesn't really care about the people. He cares about himself. And so Socrates says to Alcibiades, like, look, don't do it. You are simply, you're lacking the most important component for the most important attribute of a good statesman. That's wisdom. And without that, you can be dashing, rich, brave, all you want. It's, it's going to be a catastrophe. And sure enough, it, it was. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that, um, as far as I know, at least, nobody has done a movie or a, or a television series on the life of Alcibiades because the guy was just incredible. And, you know, of course, he ignores Socrates' advice. And uh, 20 years later, he ends up being killed by his enemies. In the meantime, he has managed to completely ruin the city of Athens during the Peloponnesian War. Uh, so, yeah, it turns out Socrates was right. <laughs> All right, we've got a, a couple from the audience here. Um, our Sto this is kind of three in one, it looks like. Are Stoics less emotional than most people? How do Stoics treat emotions? Can a Stoic be passionate? Yeah, great. That's a great question. So it's it's a common misunderstanding that stoicism is about living with a stiff upper lip and suppressing emotion, kind of like a Mr. Spock from Star Trek. And with all due respect, because Mr. Spock is one of my favorite characters ever. Uh, no, that's not what stoicism is about. However, it is about endurance. That's probably where the stiff upper lip sort of stereotype comes from uh, the stoic attitude is look if there's nothing you can do about something you might as well accept it 
right? It's, uh, if, you, if you start complaining about it and, you know, throwing a tantrum, that's not going to make things better. In fact, it's going to make things worse because the original injury is still there. And then now you're going to feel even worse about it. So there is a component of endurance. That's the same component of endurance, however, that we find in the serenity prayer that I mentioned uh, at the beginning of my talk, right? It's when we, when, uh, we ask God to uh, give us the serenity to accept. So it's not about the lack of emotion to accept something, but the serenity to accept something, even if we might not like it. Now, in terms of emotions, that's a great question. The Stoics have a very interesting, complex, sophisticated theory of emotions. And it is so good that, in fact, it um, inspired the beginning of cognitive behavioral therapy in the 1950s. Uh, and cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, is, in fact, one of the evidence-based, science-based type of psychotherapies right. that we have today. So it actually works. And the basic idea is, is that emotions always have a cognitive component. They always have a, a reason a component behind them. And therefore, you can engage with your emotions in a constructive way by basically talking to your emotion. So, for instance, uh, let's say that somebody is talking to me and, and they start insulting me. Right. And in the back of my mind, and I feel angry. I feel like the anger is mm -hmm. swelling up because like, what, why the hell is this guy saying these things? You know, I don't deserve these things. Now, at some point, at least implied is in my head is this kind of reasoning. Insults are bad. This guy's being unfair and it's not good that he's being unfair. Therefore, I'm in my rights to get upset, to get angry and perhaps yell at the guy or maybe punch him on the nose or something like that. That is a reasoning. That's a cognitive component that mm -hmm. is going on in my head. I may even not, not be aware of it if in the moment, but if you ask me later, you know, why did you get angry with that guy? I will yeah. come up, I will be able to tell your story. It's like, well, because of this and that and the other. What the Stoics try to teach themselves is to uh, resist that kind of cognitive component of the emotions. They talk to themselves and say, hold on, an insult? What's an insult? An insult is simply somebody opening their mouth and moving some air. It doesn't hurt me. It doesn't do anything to me. It only works if I let it work on me, right? If I actually right. respond, if I become angry, then the insult works. But if I just walk away and ignore the guy, then, you know, the, the whole thing falls flat. And so the stoic part of the a big part of stoic training is to try to... Um, Talk to your own emotions uh, and so that you're prepared when they actually come, come up and, and, and you react in a more reasonable way. Not unemotionally, just you're, you're uh, modifying your emotions cognitively. And that is, again, as I said, the basis for cognitive behavioral therapy. It's called CBT for that reason. The first step is cognitive. You talk to yourself and say, wait a minute, getting angry doesn't make any sense. Uh, insults are not actually damaging. Behavioral, you start, you train yourself to behave in a certain way uh, as opposed to what comes more natural, maybe, maybe more natural. So instead of start yelling at somebody, you train yourself to respond calmly to things. And then eventually that will change your emotional response itself. You're simply not going to get upset anymore. Okay. Um, we got another question. Actually, it looks like to elaborate a little bit more. Um, I've heard Stoicism says one should have distance between what happens to us and our interpretation of what happens. Yeah. So e.g. stuck in traffic, we choose to get irritated. 
Right. Is this Marcus Aurelius Stoicism? It is Marcus Aurelius, but it ultimately comes from Epictetus. As I said, Marcus was actually highly strongly influenced by Epictetus. He had read uh, one of Epictetus's books, um, uh, actually both of Epictetus's books, the Discourses and the and the and the Manual, uh, when he was young. So yes, Epictetus says that what we should try to do is, in a sense, the opposite of the Nike commercial. You know, like <laughs> just do it. Yeah. Instead of just doing it, stop for a minute, allow yourself to think about it, and then decide whether you want to do it or not. And Epictetus' bet is that most of the times the answer will be no. I don't actually need to do this. <laughs> and there is a bit. There is a nice bit in the in the Enchiridion in the in the manual where it literally says to one of his students, it's "Like, look, look at any impression. An impression is an automatic judgment." Like, for instance, oh, somebody's yelling at me, therefore I need to get angry. That's an impression, okay? Mm -hmm. And he says, look at your impression, stop for a minute, talk to your impression and say, maybe you're not exactly what, what you look what you look like, what you seem to be. Um, you are telling me that I should be getting upset, but maybe that's not right. That's not true. So let me stop for a second, think about it, calm down, and then come back to it and make a decision about how to act. Okay. Yes, yeah, that reminds me of one of uh, uh, Marcus Aurelius's quotes about I'm going to get up this morning and I'm going to see people who are troublesome and irritable and and I, I uh, I'm free, one of some of the freeways in California that that's very appropriate. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean the freeway example is a good one, right? So so I have um, uh, a former student who has a similar problem. He bikes in New York. Now biking in New York is very dangerous because cars will will cut you off all the time and you know there's this significant number of fatalities actually that happen every every year and so he used to get really angry with drivers and say you know what the hell are you doing and why are you doing this it's all now he trains he trained himself to think about the fact that the driver possibly might actually have a reason to be in a hurry maybe his wife is pregnant yeah. and he wants to get to the hospital you know or maybe he's just distracted by somebody else. it's not about it's not about him in other words he's not doing it on purpose it, there may be other reasons and we don't know and one of the things that the stoics are big on is don't engage in automatic judgments when you don't have enough information pause you don't necessarily know that the guy's a jerk you don't know why what his motivation it may be but it doesn't help uh, just to jump immediately to that to that conclusion perhaps he has good reasons and after all you survived because you're fine you, you know he cut you off but you're fine so what's the big deal okay and so that kind of leads in so i i was going to ask about the, the and i don't know if i'll pronounce this right the practice of premeditatio malorum Yes, it's beneficial. How would we balance that uh, with our with with our natural tendency to sometimes catastrophize things? Yes, that's right. So uh, the premeditatio malorum uh, is fancy Latin for thinking about bad crap happening to you ahead of time, <laughs> right? And the reason for why you why would you want to do that? I mean, some some people say, you know, I, I have enough crap coming my way anyway. Why would I want to actually meditate on it ahead of time? Well, the reason for that is because then you're you're ready when it comes. Right? So uh, a typical stoic exercise along those lines, for instance, would be, oh, I'm a, I'm about for to go for a job interview. I am going to visualize what would happen if I don't get the job. 
I'm going to visualize the okay. interviewer telling me, oh, I'm sorry, you, you know, you're not the person we're looking for, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going to visualize how I'm going to react to the situation, right? And the idea is that once you do that, you preempt your own reactions. Now you're ready to go. You, you know already what to do. And a prepared mind, Seneca says, is, is, a, is a mind that already knows how to deal with, with situations. Um, now, that needs to be balanced, of course, with the idea that, as you say, we don't want to catastrophize things. So catastrophizing is, in fact, a term that comes from rational emotive behavioral therapy, which is a type of CBT. And uh, the guy that invented the word is Albert Ellis actually was reading Epictetus when he was thinking about the, this stuff. And so, yeah, we do have a tendency to catastrophize. But part of the, 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 in other words, to make bigger the problem, bigger than, than it actually is. Part of the premeditatio malorum is precisely to avoid catastrophizing. Because at the end of the premeditatio, you're going to say, okay, so you're not getting the job. So what? That's not the end of the world. There will be other jobs. There will be other interviews. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna prepare. You've learned something. If you pay attention, you learned something from the fact that you didn't get this particular job. So next time you're gonna do better. It's not a catastrophe, in other words. It's not the end of the world. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, another question from the uh, online audience: Which ancient author is the best to read first? Oh, that's a good question. <sighs> Depends on, on, it depends on, um, I think, your personality to some extent and also probably your age. So, for instance, if you appreciate brooding and moody characters, then start with Marcus. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> so Marcus is the kind of the existentialist stoic. He's somebody who is clearly there, not happy about okay. things, and he's trying to work his, his, his own problems. Now, if you, on the other hand, if uh, react well to sort of forceful and even sarcastic advice, then read Epictetus. A colleague of mine, in fact, the same colleague that I that I mentioned during the talk, um, uh, Brian Johnson, once told me that we should imagine Epictetus as the coach in for Rocky in the Rocky movies. I don't know if you remember, but he was very the coach was very in your face and very. Yeah. Matter of fact, right? He just doesn't get Rocky get away with anything. So if that's if you respond well to that kind of thing, and I do, then Epictetus is is certainly your 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 guy. On the other hand, if you're looking for clear exposition, very um, you know commanding language and, mm -hmm. and and very well presented ideas, then Seneca is is certainly the way to go. Seneca writes beautifully. Is is really a pleasure. Uh, to read, even even if you're not a stoic, it doesn't matter. He's he's a classic of Latin literature. So so it depends. It, it varies depending on 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 who what what your mood is and and uh, your personality. Okay. okay. Uh, we got another one from online. Where can I meet other Stoics? Oh, excellent question. There are a number of ways. Uh, my favorite outlet is you go onto a site called Stoic Fellowship. The Stoic Fellowship. It's I think it's stoicfellowship.org, but anyway, people can search for it. That thing, the, the first thing you'll see there is a world map. You click on your area of the world and it will give you a list of either individuals or organizations that work in your area uh, on, on stoicism practice, stoicism discussed, stoicism. If you don't find anybody in your area, then the site will ask you to register with them, and that will do two things. It will 
do um, if, if somebody else starts a group, they'll let you know. And also they will say, hey, since nobody's there doing it, why don't you start a group and we'll send <laughs> okay. you members as soon as we find out. There are also other ways, uh, for instance, my stoic group in uh, uh, in New York City meets through Meetup. So Meetup is a very good uh, platform to find. You can just go on your local Meetup website and, and search for stoic or stoicism and more likely than not, you're going to find somebody. Okay. We got just a couple minutes left. So I had a, a question and it kind of goes back to what we you discussed briefly real early. Uh, in your book, you mentioned that um, Seneca's reputation is, is somewhat mixed. Um, I, prior to that, I had only known about him through his writings. Can you talk a little bit about a little bit more about Seneca's background? Well, he has two problems for a Stoic. First of all, he was associated with Nero, and Nero's reign didn't go very well, <laughs> especially near the end. You know, he was Nero's advisor, uh, right? And the other thing is, he was he was really rich. He was the second richest person in in the empire after the after the emperor. And people take that to be problematic because you know here is somebody who professes to be a Stoic and. Uh, be fine with with a minimalist lifestyle, but then it turns out he has villas everywhere in, in Italy and so on and so forth. However, I do think that it's a little unfair to hyper to hyper criticize Seneca for, for for a number of reasons. First of all, because we don't actually know much about the historical record. All we have are a couple of reports from people who really hated the guy, and they were political mm -hmm. opponents. And so, of course, we don't get a good portrait. <laughs> Of, of Seneca from, from his enemies. So that's that's one reason for caution. Another reason is that Stoicism actually has no problem with wealth. Uh, wealth right. is a, a what, what the Stoics call a preferred indifferent. It's indifferent meaning that uh, it doesn't do any good or bad for your character. It's just neutral. Mm -hmm. And so if you're wealthy and you use your wealth for good causes, then by all means, there is, there is no problem for a stoic. Now, if you're wealthy and you use it for, you know, to corrupt people or to buy your, your way into the political system, then, then it's a bad thing. But we have no no reason to believe that Seneca actually used his wealth in, the, in, that, in that manner. Now, as far as, as Nero is concerned, there are two things are complicated. You know, Nero is the quintessential example of the bad emperor, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the guy yeah. who burned Rome or something like that, right? But it turns out the historical record is much more checkered there as well. First of all, no, Nino did not burn Rome. He was not there playing his lyre when when, uh, when Rome was burning. In fact, he was out of town, as, as it turns out. And he spent a significant amount of his own money to clean up the, the mess afterwards, to buy property and rebuild. So so it wasn't really that bad of a guy. yes. Later on, it became increasingly unhinged, and and it was it was really more of a sad figure than than a than a, an actual tyrant. I mean, there were serious tyrants in the in the history of Rome, like Caligula, for instance, or Tiberius. Uh, those were really bad guys. But Nero, it's kind of in between. Also, historians for a long time have agreed that the first five years of Nero's reign were actually very good. Uh, yeah. It was a time of prosperity where no major, you know, nefarious thing was was going on, and those were the years uh, during which Seneca was Nero's advisor. Then Seneca realized that Nero was becoming more and more unhinged, and he mm -hmm. tried to buy his way to retirement. 
he actually uh, uh, said, you know, I'm very wealthy. I'll give you most of what I have. I just want a villa outside of Rome and retire. And at that point, uh, Nero did not allow Seneca to retire because it was an important part of the of the regime. So there was this, this thing going on. And finally, one more thing. Let's not forget. Seneca uh, committed suicide at the end of his life on the orders of Nero. And that's because Nero thought that Seneca was involved in a conspiracy against the emperor. Right. Now, historians think that, that Seneca was not directly involved in the conspiracy. His, his nephew, Lucan, who was a, poem, a poet, uh, was involved directly. But Seneca very likely didn't know about the conspiracy. And now knowing about a conspiracy against an emperor and not saying anything is just as good as, as being involved no. in it. It's not, <laughs> it's not much different. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah, I can see that that'd be somewhat problematic. <laughs> um uh, I do got a note here, it's stoicfellowship.com instead of Possibly, yeah. mm -hmm. so, okay. uh, let me see. Let me I can actually check um yeah right here. So we're at our our uh, 65 minutes here. So I think we're gonna wrap it up here. It's stoicfellowship.com. Okay. As it turns out, yeah. All right, thank you. And our gratitude from everyone to Professor Massimo Pagliucci for being with us today. We're grateful to our viewing audience. And now this presentation of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 120th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.